0: can open up to Matthew chapter 2 as we finish out uh, the very early years that Matthew has for us on Jesus and this birth narrative. Um, And so as you're turning there, I'm just going to pray for us this morning. Lord, thank you for your word and for the truth that it contains that we can rest in who you are, uh, trust you, believe you, be encouraged by you, be convicted through your word. And just asking now that you would Move in us, encourage us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Matthew has been writing, and we haven't gotten into a lot of this yet, and we'll look at a little bit more of it in detail next week, which will serve more as an introduction into uh, the gospel of Matthew, or the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, But he's been writing to uh, primarily a Jewish audience, and in so doing, when he's telling this birth narrative, he found it incredibly important to talk about this genealogy of who or where Jesus came from. And if you were here, I don't know, was that four weeks ago? We explored some of the ideas and themes behind this genealogy of who Jesus is. Then through narrative or storytelling, we continue to get insight once again to Jesus the King And through some of the stories of Herod and his responses and conflict that is met, we continue to see through narrative that Jesus is king. And now there's a third way in which Matthew is telling us who Jesus is, and it's through fulfillment of prophecy. All three of these are very important avenues in which he's trying to gather the attention of any Jewish listener to say, this is who Jesus is. He is of the lineage of David. Oh, oh, you missed that? Let me explicitly spell it out. He is the king. And I'm telling this through narrative and these magi coming to bow down and worship him. You still don't believe me? Listen, this is fulfillment of prophecy and what was talked about in the Old Testament is now being described of who Jesus is. So I want to read this to you. There's uh, no less than at least three in here that we're at least going to explore. And the third one is a bit vague, I'm going to be honest. And I picked one of about four different ideas of what people think it might elude to. But it begins in chapter 2, verse 13. Says, Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This Was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So, first and foremost, we're gonna present these three ideas and give some context to what's going on, and then we're gonna connect it to some big ideas for us here this morning. But just as Israel spent time in Egypt and was called out of Egypt, The son of God, Jesus, is spending time in Egypt. You can turn to um, Hosea, if you can find it, chapter 11, verse 1. It's one of those prophets there coming after Isaiah. And so if you can turn there, there's about 12 chapters, 13 chapters in it. It says this in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. So the Jews understood this to be a prophetic voice of the Messiah, that he would spend time in Egypt and he would be called out of Egypt. And so one of the themes that you're going to see today is there was a major disruption in the life of Mary and Joseph, a massive inconvenience. There, when Herod was seeking the life of Jesus, they would have to go live as immigrants in Egypt, just as ancient Israel had lived in Egypt, and when it was safe for them to come back, God calls them out of Egypt to go and dwell in the land of Israel. This is for Jesus as well. And so we see a fulfillment of that, and God, through Matthew, is trying to draw the attention of his people, going, look, this is a key idea. This is a key theme that you need to hone in onto because I am telling you right now explicitly who this Jesus actually is. Uh, If you don't get it, if you're a bit dense, we can continue to read. It says, then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years or old or under, according to the time that he had certain from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and ten is up. What did Jeremiah say? Well, you are a bunch of Western, modern, New Testament-holding thinkers, so you're not probably having all kinds of ideas triggering off. In fact, all we really consume or understand about Jeremiah is he had to do some pretty weird stuff for God, it felt like. And there's that verse in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven 11, that, that we all kind of hold near and dear to our hearts. And we're thinking, I know the thoughts you have for me, thoughts of peace and not of evil to lead me to a future and a hope. And that's pretty much what we know of the life of Jeremiah. But here, Matthew is calling their attention to Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 14. Now, let me read Matthew's words. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. Does anybody remember who Rachel was? We'll keep it rhetorical. I don't need you to shout it out. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, one of two wives. And it came to Benjamin in which she said the words to God, give me children lest I die. And in childbirth, what happened to her? She died. She died, and she was known as this weeping woman for the Israelites, which she so badly craved and desired and wanted. She was a sorrowful mother of the Old Testament. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to look at verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. It's said that as Jeremiah is writing this, he would have noticed that his own people from the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, were being carried off into exile. And then there'd be this promise and this hope, even through Jeremiah's words, that they would once again return to Israel. And what Matthew is doing is he's taking this in the greater context, and he's pointing us towards Jesus, that Jesus is fulfilling this, that even though we see some seeds of disappointment for Israel in their own captivity, and once again, Israel under the authority of Roman rule, living, yes, in the land, but not having the rule and the reign of the land in which they had hoped and anticipated for, that there's a hope that has come in this Jesus, So disappointments, yet God is going to bring about his ultimate good and purpose in their lives. That's going to be kind of a, a mega theme probably for us as we've even looked at the last year. The third thing that is said here comes in verses 19 through 23 and towards the end there. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelius was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets, plural. So probably an allusion to multiple, maybe some obscure references in the Old Testament might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, This one for centuries has had Bible commentators and theologians a little bit perplexed because there's not a direct allusion or direct quotation that we can take and say, this is exactly what Matthew is talking about here in connection to this prophecy. But there is this idea that comes out of, I believe, Isaiah, where you have this one that was going to be of no reputation, right? You guys recall that? He'd be made of no reputation. And what are the words of Nathanael when he speaks about this Jesus? What good comes out of Nazareth? It was a region that was occupied by a lot of Gentiles. It was pretty mixed there. So it was kind of this obscure town, obscure place that nobody really wanted to dwell in. You went there to get away, to hide, possibly. Okay? And, and so for this passage to have some connection, there's a lot of thought coming from the idea that this was an obscure town and of what reputation he's made of no reputation, and Jesus is coming out of that region. So these are three things spoken over, spoken about Jesus to grab our attention, to set the stage for the rest of Matthew. And Matthew's going to begin in chapter 3 with Jesus coming on the scene, talking, preaching, presenting the kingdom of God. But for any that wonder, are we sure? I mean, could there still be another one who is to come? If you're in tune with much of the Jewish faith, there's still a hope that there's going to be a Messiah that comes back who reigns and who sits on the throne. And Matthew is going towards a lot of work to make sure you understand. Look at the genealogy. Look at the narrative. Look at the fulfilled prophecy in Jesus. All three of these line up about who he is and tell us why he came. So do not miss this because the rest I'm going to tell you is so important on what it looks like to being part of his kingdom and coming underneath his rule and his reign. So what can the we, before we get into all of that next week and the next year, take away from these first two chapters? Well, the story of Jesus is both a little bit surprising and filled with disruptions. And that feels a lot like life, doesn't it? Life can be a little surprising at times, but filled with disruptions. And Matthew makes it plain that God works through these surprises and these disruptions to bring about his story, his kingdom. He's making it clear that this is not some new story, but as we've said over and over again, a continuation of God's story. This is all connected and progressing the narrative of the kingdom of God, of humans being in right relationship with God once again. And you read this, and you look at Mary and Joseph's life, and just their narrative, and it was not an easy go. As we briefly talked about Thursday evening at Christmas Eve, they had a rough first two, first two years of marriage, didn't they? Almost ended it before it even began. Lived as immigrants in another land because somebody wanted to kill their child? This was tough stuff. There were some things they had to process. They had to think through and the implications of it. And then to go live in an area that was not even their home native town in which they were born and raised in. All because of this Jesus. And so when you look at this, you can say, wow. Disruptions, And we have a few different categories and ways in which we look at disruptions in life. And this morning, I want us to see disruptions as opportunity. I'm bad at this. Just going to be honest. I love my plans. I love when things go according to my plans. And I hate when the wrench gets thrown in. The extra meeting, the extra appointment, the, you know, kid who breaks a window out of nowhere, and you're like, that was not part of the plan, kid. All right? Things are just supposed to go a certain way and progress. And so we need to, though, in a bit, reframe our thinking, because life does not go how any of us planned. If this last year showed us anything, that is a true thing it showed us, correct? This last year, we've all experienced a little bit of disruption, something coming out of left field, a curveball in which we went, um, what, what's going on? It's caused some of us to say, what am I about? What brings value and purpose and meaning? And how can I react and respond in a way in which it shows what I'm truly about? And so we've experienced personal disruption, and what personal disruption has a way of doing is revealing what's inside of our hearts. Of revealing what's going on and what then flows out of our lives. And I know that we're all very aware of this as life has been disrupted. I, I love Paul Tripp on this whole thought process and the heart. If you ever want to have good studies on the heart, every one of his books, that's all he ever talks about. And he uses parenting and marriage and ministry and all kinds of different avenues to get to one thing, which is the heart. So pick up any of his books. He'll get there. But Tripp says this. It's a little long, so just hang with me. You see, Christianity, which has the gospel of Jesus at the center, simply doesn't rest its hope in big, dramatic moments of change. The fact of the matter is this. The transforming work of grace operates in 10,000 little moments, more than it does in a series of two or three life-altering events. So what Tripp is going to say and continue to say in just a moment is who you are is not defined by a few big things that happened this last year, in the last 10 years, or in the last 20 years. Who you are is made up in the 10,000 little moments of life. The little irritations, the little frustrations, the little victories and joys that have happened in your life. The disappointments, the arguments and the frustrations in the very mundane moments of your marriage or child raising or going to work daily and performing tasks. It's in those minute, minuscule little moments that God is forming and transforming our character and he's working through us and then it's highlighted how we live our lives. Tripp says, in other words, the character and quality of your life won't be defined by two or three life-changing moments. No, the character and quality of your life will be defined by 10,000 little decisions, desires, words, and actions you make every day. It's really easy to live in the big moments and to respond in those moments, to think through and process those moments. But we have to realize that our life is made up of the 10,000 little moments daily. And how we react and how we respond when those disruptions and frustrations and complications all come into our life. So how do you view interruptions, irritations, or opportunities, (laughs) right? How do you, how do I view the disruption of 2020? Irritation. Or opportunity. (laughs) I love it, Mary. We know where you sit on this. (laughs) Irritation or opportunity? How do you view the fights and the tiffs and the moments of letdown? Irritation or opportunity? So the moments this week that you've encountered of interruption, how did you respond? Just, Just think through your week. Or for some of you, just getting to church every single week on a Sunday because one of you wants to be here early and the other just hopes you get here, right? And that forms some kind of frustration in your lives. I'm sure. I know it has. And my biggest fights in my marriage, just like open, this is who we are moment, has to do with time and being on time. It actually has to do with control and perception and how we're perceived. That's truly. So I, I can classify it as it's, here's the problem. I like to be five minutes early is still a little late. Just so you, just so you know. Okay, that's my view. And let's just hope we show up can be another view that is held that in, in our family. All right, we'll, we'll just say it like that. But the reality is, it's not actually about the minutes on a clock. It's not. It's about control. It's about a perception of, I want people to know that we're here and that matters and, and those things. So, so it's always bigger and deeper. But how do you view the knock on your door when you're trying to get out of the house? How do you view the unexpected phone call that you know is going to be so dang draining and you go, ignore. <laughs> we'll call them back when I'm in the mood, which be never or when your boss asks you to do something that you're going, that's outside of my realm or my desire of performance. I don't want to do that. Interruptions, they come into our lives constantly. They are a consistent, and those moments and how we respond to people uh, and how we hear them and see them actually matters. If you want to, you can turn over to Acts chapter 3. I really like the story. It's actually really funny. Um, I think it's okay to share. Uh, This last Monday, we have prayer from 11.45 to 12.30. And it's actually what got me thinking about this story particularly. And and Michael showed up a few minutes late. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm a little bit late. I was actually getting to know my neighbors a little bit. And in the back of my head, I'm going, fantastic. That's actually really important that you're doing that. And it plays right into this story here. In chapter 3, it says, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So they want to go pray. They want to go do religious things. They want to go spend time with Jesus, good or bad. That's good. Yeah, I love it. You should want to do that kind of stuff. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. All those suckers, they're going to give to me. If I'm in front of the temple, they're going to feel obligated. I mean, if you're in that situation today, put somebody on the front steps. And as people are walking into the church, and if somebody's begging for money, I guarantee he'd do pretty well, probably better than the corner of Fred Meyer on Veterans Way or whatever it is. Just, just you know, FYI and a tip. So this guy's out front. They lay daily at the gate of the temple. that is called the beautiful gate to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Peter and John about to go into the temple. This guy asked to receive alms. Interruption. We got Jesus business to do. I got things to be about. We've got to pray. We've got to ask God to move and work in our lives. And all of a sudden you have somebody, just put yourself in their shoes. This is annoying. I'm telling you. It is. This is frustrating. Why are you asking us for money? We're leading a church, an organization. Come on now. Get with the picture. We'll set some other people up to handle that. What happens though? Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I love that. Rise up and walk. Walk. He took him by the hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. The guy goes leaping. What happens next? Peter takes it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to everyone around because this guy can't contain himself. Irritation, disruption, opportunity. We need to reframe our thinking. Down to even in our homes and in those little moments Not just, this is going to be a great Jesus moment and a big moment, which I'm going to get to pray and lay hands on somebody, and this is so epic. To your kid who's asked the same question for the 25th time in the last 10 minutes. (laughs) Now, teaching opportunity for them, correct, absolutely. But irritation or opportunity? And there are so many little moments that pass us by because we view things through the wrong lens. We don't have the compassion of Jesus. We don't have hearts that are filled with this idea of today I'm going to look for opportunities to love, care, and serve for others. The number of opportunities that I believe we miss because we're simply not living lives with eyes open, having spent time with asking God how and who do you want me to minister today is probably astronomical to some degree because we're so consumed, so concerned with how do I get through my day? These disruptions, they also come into our lives and they want to teach us something else. Not just looking for opportunities, but they're a question. Will you continue to trust God even when it's hard? That's a big question. It it truly is. Because we've all experienced trusting God in those highs and those mountain peaks and when he does something great or incredible in our lives. But in the everyday moments of all of a sudden when chaos ensues and our worlds are falling apart and caving in on us, do we trust God that he is able to be present with us in the midst? And when you consider this, this idea of trusting God, uh, what do you think about When it comes to trusting God, what runs through your head of what is it? I mean, it's the most annoying question when you're telling somebody your big problems and they go, do you trust God? (laughs) Like, well, what do you mean by that? Because I trust him with my salvation. I just don't trust him with my bank account right now. Okay. It's not going very well. Uh, I trust him that maybe at some point things are going to work out, but I, I can't really fathom this moment of what it actually means to trust God. And I think when we talk about this trusting God with a lot of evangelicals, there's this mindset of there's an upward trajectory if I trust God in which my life is actually going to go. That's not how it plays out in real life. Read Acts. They were not on an upward trajectory of your best life now. They were in a wave or a sea of ups and downs and great points and low points and having much and having little. And there's all sorts of problems filled with their lives. And this is where this is difficult for a lot of us. Because we go, yes, I trust, I believe, I have faith in God. But what tends to happen is we go, God, I trusted you with my health and it's not well, what's wrong with you? I trusted you with my wealth, and now it's gone. What's wrong with you? I trusted you with my job, with my children, but it's not turning out how I anticipated and hoped. And as you read this narrative, and you look at just Joseph and Mary, and then the numerous stories we're going to get into in the Gospels, You have people trusting God and then you actually read their stories and it's as messy as all get out. Well, you continue in the mess to trust him. This idea of living by faith gets thrown out in a lot of different ways in different contexts. And the word faith in the Bible doesn't just mean some sort of intellectual belief in God. That's sort of what we've translated it to. It means no less than that, understand that, but it's something more. Faith means resting, trusting in who God is. Are you a person of rest? If you want to know, do I trust God? Are you a person of rest? It's very hard to sometimes equate those two things together, but it is actual truth. When you lay your head down, when you have quiet moments, Are you at rest and peace because you know God? I'm not saying your circumstances are at peace and rest. There's storms and chaos all around us. But to trust God means there's this inner hope, inner trust, inner rest. And if we say, God, you are sufficient. You are what I need. You are who I desire. There's a peace about you. That's what we crave. That's what we want. It's not just getting what we think we want. That's not what faith does for us. It's getting his peace into our hearts, into our lives. Numerous examples we can pull from just the gospel stories that were told. But you can think about the disciples, uh, one of their many occasions on a ship, and it's not going well for them. Uh, One time Jesus is sleeping on the boat while they're getting tossed around on storms. Another time he's not even on the boat with them, and they're freaking out that they're not going to get to the other side. And there's all these circumstantial problems. And what we often see in our lives is we're controlled by our circumstances rather than actually trusting God in the midst of them and seeing his presence with each and every one of us. And Jesus, when he looks at them, he doesn't say, say, you guys should have just thought more positively about the moment that you were in and it was going to get better. But there's this intent focus of fix your eyes on me in the midst of the storm. Trust me. And where we often err is, I think I'm just going to convince myself I'll get through it in a certain fashion or a certain way. And Jesus says, don't fix your eyes on it just getting better or stopping. But right now in the present moment, fix your eyes on me. Even with the waves, even with the storm, this is what it means to trust me, to have inner rest, inner peace. We link inner rest and inner peace to a future moment when God calms the waves. Or when heaven comes in its fullest moment. But what Jesus is getting at is right now in your situation, in your place, I I know it's crazy out there, but fix your eyes on me. I think we all struggle a little bit with that. I'll look to you and I'll really hope that it gets better. But what would it look like right now to fix your eyes on him? Faith is applying what you're already convinced of. Are you convinced of what Michael prayed, Jesus is king? Are you convinced of that? Are you convinced that Jesus is present in the storm with you right now? That it's not getting past him or by him. And it doesn't mean you won't feel the moment because you'll feel the moment but you feel the moment in a different way when you truly trust and believe that Jesus is present with you. We cannot be so intent and focused on the problem getting fixed that we miss the king in the middle of it. And that, friends, is where we tend to live. Because by golly, we're Americans. And we're going to fix stuff. We're doing really great at that, huh? Fixing the country, fixing the world. I mean, wherever we go, things just get better. That's actually our mentality. We believe that. So true. And yet, yet we miss. It's not just about getting it fixed, but it's about worshiping God in the moment and that he is in control over those things. So the third thing I want us to see We're going to close out with this this morning as we're trusting God in the midst of difficulties. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but peace in difficulties. I want you to write down at some point today, right now, this evening, tomorrow, these are my difficulties. And these are where I'm looking for things to get fixed. This is what I'm actually hoping in, that the storm calms, that the peace comes, that it's going to be better. And I want you to instead, after you write that out, just kind of contrasted to what would it look like to look at Jesus in the moment, to worship him in the moment of this difficulty and trial, taking your eyes off what you think you really want, which is peace and easiness, and putting your eyes on what truly is peace, which is Christ, bowing down and worshiping him. And what is my then response going to be if I trust him? I believe it's going to bring about personal renewal in our own hearts and our own lives. And personal renewal never stays personal. It'll spill out, and fall over on everybody around us. Uh, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a must uh, as far as books outside of Scripture read Mere Christianity. But Lewis says, Handing everything over to Christ does not, of course, mean that you stop trying. To trust him means trying to do all that he says. All of my antinomian friends are freaking out right now. Antinomian are just those like, hey, don't worry about anything. No progression towards grace. I'm giving just a really generalized, low-level understanding of that. We could delve into the context of that at some other point. Wait, wait. Trust means to actually do something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's press in. Lewis goes on to say, There'd be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you've really handed yourself over to him, if you must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. A less worried way. Million dollars on the line. Brett versus Benny in a wrestling match. (laughs) Am I worried about who's going to win that match? If you don't know, Benny is my eight-year-old son. All right? I could destroy him blindfolded with one arm tied behind my back right now. I could still take him. I could fight and wrestle with him in a less worried way because the victory is going to be won. And really, once again, just kind of a cheesy, low-level example of what Lewis is talking about here. But he's saying, you serve Jesus, you press into Jesus, you participate and practice the disciplines, not to get something from Jesus, but because he's enabled your heart to love him in that way. There's not this fear or worry of, God must hate me. He must be ticked at me, upset with me. I'm not worried about that as a Christian. Did you know that? I'm not. And it's actually freed me because of his victory. And I walk in that. I say, I want to pursue you. It's a different way of thinking. Religious people think, here's what I must do to please God. People in Christ say, God is pleased. So I want to pursue him in this way. Goodness, I think we just miss that. I think it makes so much of life a drudge when it comes to disciplines of prayer and fasting, when it comes to disciplines of reading scripture, when it comes to the discipline of gathering with the saints, when it comes to the discipline of being in fellowship with one another. I don't, I don't really want to go there. It just feels like it's this religious act. No, no, as God has freed us, and Lewis continues to say, so cap off his quote trying in a new less worried way not doing these things in order to be saved but because he has begin, begun to save you already not hoping to get to heaven we're going to talk a lot about that in Matthew it's going to be fun as a reward by your actions but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way that because at first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you as we saying heaven has come His rule, his reign, his presence is spiritual, it's physical. He has a realm, he has a kingdom, we're participating in it. And we're spreading that light and taking that to other people. So what this does is it begins to cause me to say, I want to participate in the disciplines. It's been a year of that for me, reading Renovation of the Heart, our celebration of discipline. And there's other books on my list saying, what, what does this actually look like to pursue God in these ways, through these healthy rhythms of rest, Sabbath, of worship, of gathering, and all the rest? Do I trust him? Do I trust that he knows what's best for me? And I really want to pose that question heading into this next year because there are things that are going to get asked of us as God taps us on the shoulder personally, and it's going to be a major disruption, and it's going to drain us, it's going to take from us, Some of our time and talent and treasure that we like to store up for ourselves and progress our own lives is going to say, I actually want you to spend that in a different way. And I want you to use that for my kingdom and my purposes and my namesake. But God, if I do that, will I have enough? Will I be okay? And my question to you is, will you trust him? Will you trust him in those areas of your life? Let's pray. God, thank you for a very simple reminder this morning. You are faithful. The genealogy tells us who you are. The narrative stories declare who you are. These prophecies say that you fulfilled it. We have all the reason in the world to put trust, which is our rest, really deeply in you and be a people of peace. So God, encourage us in those ways. May we lean into that and serve you out of an abundance love for you. Be with us, encourage us in this time, in Jesus' name, amen.